You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, also known as your joyologist. On this podcast, I love having conversations with people who inspire and intrigue me getting into the journey of their life. So while we do end up talking about their most recent awesome thing and what they're up to in the world, we go through their life to see how they ended up here. My hope is that by listening to other people's stories, you can see that life is often not a straight upward line, that people change jobs, change relationships, change all sorts of things. I hope that it gives you more compassion for yourself and allows you to see that, hey, You're not too late. You're not too early. There's still time to make a change. And maybe you are perfect as you are and you just need to be nicer to yourself instead of feeling like you should be doing things differently or more or blah, 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 blah. On today's episode, I have Vanessa Bennett. I had her husband, John Kim, who was known as the angry therapist on, uh, I was going to say a year ago, but I don't even know. It must have been a couple years ago because it was when his last book came out and they have just written a book together that is out now called It's Not Me, It's You. So we go through Vanessa's life. How did she end up becoming a psychotherapist, married to another (laughs) psychotherapist, and them now coming together to write this book? So I hope you enjoy. Please share the episode and tag us. I have Claim It Podcast. My main profile is at underscore Trisha Huffman. If you haven't yet, leave a review, rate the podcast, and I'm so grateful for reviews. If you screenshot it and send it to me at podcast at yourdualogist.com, I'll send you a little gift from my product line. Also, review the book, my book, F the Shoulds Do the Once, and go get Vanessa and John's book, It's Not Me, It's You, and then leave that a review too. Reviews really, really, really support podcasters, authors, creators, not just because it's nice to read the words, but even just having reviews there is something that helps platforms boost and recommend podcasts and books and more. All right, so leave a review. Let's get into the episode. Okay, so I like starting with high school years, but you can go earlier than that. I just like, I feel like high school is an interesting time to start because it can be like a really a time when we're like trying to figure out what we're going to do with the rest of our lives. (laughs) So like, what was your life like? Again, you can go earlier. And did you have any sort of ideas of like, this is what I'm going to be when I grow up or having any sort of pressures or? You know, it's funny, John and I, my partner, were just talking a little bit about something similar the other day. And I was saying that one of my cousins said to me once as an adult, you're the only person I've ever met in my life who at like in fifth grade, like at 10 years old, like knew what you wanted to do with your life. And it always centered around getting the hell out of our hometown. <laughs> and I like had to laugh, but um, recently a couple more people have said like, well, what did you want to do? Or when did you know? And I, I always said like, I didn't know that I specifically wanted to be something. I just knew I wanted to get like the fuck out of Dodge. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in upstate New York, mostly from like six years old on. 
and you know, now going back as an adult, like it's pretty in the fall and all that stuff, but uh, I hated it. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. No offense to all my fellow Syracusians out there, but I hated it. I always felt very restricted. I always felt like very, and I still kind of feel like this. Um, and I can say this because I know my mom won't listen to this, but it's just like a very kind of close-minded, small town, not diverse at all. And I just always knew that, even from a really young age. Um, and again, it's like not to shit talk. It's a beautiful place and it can be a great place to be and grow up, but it just always felt very restricted to me. So not to kind of go too off path, but basically from middle school on, like that was my number one priority. And then what I will say, as far as like knowing what I wanted to do when I was in high school, I had a very clear idea that I wanted to be Brooke Burke. Remember Brooke Burke? Brooke Burke? Wild on wait, E. Wait, I think I know. Wild on what? E. Do you remember the show? Wild on E. Well, so I was like, I, I'm imagining her as like a, some sort of like a... She was like an SI, like swimsuit model. She was, you know, gorgeous. She was like a host. And so she got this job on E back when E was like huge. It was called Wild On. And so essentially her job was she got paid to travel around the world. It, it was like before the travel channel was really a thing. So like this was like the first kind of... I mean, I'm sure it wasn't the first travel channel, you know, travel show, but it was one of the first ones that became like popular. And I was like, that's what I want. I want to get paid to like travel, meet people, eat new food, party, like all these things that she was doing. And so it's hilarious when I think back, but I legit wanted to be Brooke Burke. <laughs> that's funny. Well, I, uh, I also knew I wanted to get out of my town, Cincinnati, Ohio. And it's so interesting because I was just talking to my sister this weekend and she stayed in in our town. Like she even like moved away for college, like to Ohio University, which is a couple hour away for like one year, and then moved back. And so, and she's been there and has family and her kids now. One is in college, and he's going to Ohio State. And then my niece is getting ready to go to college. And I was like, oh, does she think? You, well, she knows she wants to stay in Ohio. And I was just like, that is so interesting to me, like how she and both her kids are just like, yeah, we want to like. And she's even like, oh, yeah, she's interested in screenwriting and this. And I was like, oh, well, go to Columbia College. Oh, that's where like I went in the film school. And like, well, no, she might just go to like, you. and I'm like, well, she just wants to stay in Ohio. And it was just like, that's so interesting how some people are just so like, I got to get out of here. And some people are like, and I will stay here. And I am happy here. <laughs> and like, neither way is right or wrong. But like, I was like, what is this? That your kids are just like, yes, we want to be in Ohio. It, like, nothing's wrong with Ohio, but just like. I had such a different experience. <laughs> no, but it's the it's the psychology. It's the psychology behind it. Like I'm so fascinated like what makes one person like you said be like I have to get out and explore and expand and what makes one person say I actually really like the comfort and the knowing, right? Of like staying where I grew up. And to your point, there's nothing right or wrong with either. I'm not, you know, I'm to totally not bashing people who do stay in their hometown. Although I mean, I say that, and I do think that part of your 20s should be spent exploring elsewhere. I'm a very big proponent of that because it does expand your mind and it expands your belief about the world and it makes you realize how small and insignificant you are in the greater scheme of things. But I also did a lot of traveling in college and I went to a lot of like developing countries. And so that was part of it too. But anyway, I don't know. We could talk about that for days. <laughs> 
Well, no, that, but then I also like, I think early, earlier years, I don't even know if it was early high school, was like, I wanted to be like an MTV, like VJ. So like, was do you remember this, Hillary like, Burton? Like, I wasn't, I was you were like, all- this girl, Hillary <laughs> Burton was, do you remember her? She got discovered sitting under a tree. She went to NYU. She was sitting under a tree studying. You know what? She went on One Tree Hill. She then became an actress. She was on One Tree Hill. I'm like dating myself, but like she... This is how this girl got discovered. I remember being so jealous. Like, so she was just sitting under a tree. I'm just going to be sitting around town uh, reading books under trees and uh, maybe it's all work out. You know, I wanted to be one too. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, (laughs) so what did you like? So then, yeah. So as then the time is coming to graduate high school and stuff, did you then pick like, okay, I just want to get out of here. So let me pick a college far away. Or did you like, yeah, like what was your- I didn't apply to any school to get out of Dodge. Like I, I didn't apply to a single college in New York state. Like it didn't even apply. I mean, I might've done like a backup SUNY school or something, but I applied to schools in Boston, in Philly, and you know Northeast. I mean, I stayed in the Northeast, but I I was really adamant that I wanted to go to a city, so I ended up going to Boston for undergrad to Northeastern. And I have a funny story of being a freshman, and my two roommates. One of them was first generation Portuguese from North Jersey, and then one of them Irish Philly, born and raised. And I remember sitting with them at one of our meals and being like. I love Boston. It's so culturally diverse. <laughs> and they were like, Boston is literally the whitest city in the country. What are you talking about? <laughs> but, but for you, me, you're and like, I remember this wow. moment of like shock. Like it is, you know, but that just shows you the lack of diversity that I kind of grew up around and how hungry I was actually. And then I went to New York for the first time and I was like, oh, this is diversity. Got it. But um, but yeah, so I ended up in Boston. I was there for five years on and off. I traveled a bit as well. And then, you know, like I said, I did. I did. And what did you, stu- like, did you know when you went there what you wanted to study or was it just like, let me get to college? Yeah. Then- I mean, it was communications based. So I, I actually went to Northeastern because they have this really awesome program. It's a co-op school. So it's like you do six months work, six months study, six months work. So when I graduated, I essentially already had a resume and it's how I got my start. So I moved to New York for six months for one of them. I was working for Conan O'Brien. I was working for Spike TV back in the day because I wanted to go into TV. So then when I graduated, I essentially had a job. Oh, so you really were exploring that, like, let me be Brooke Burke. (laughs) I was all about it. I was like, I'm going to be a host. I'm going to be on air. I was like meeting all the people. You know, I I went to New York. I was kind of like rubbing elbows or shoulders, whatever they say. And uh, I did it for like a year where it was kind of like freelance, like getting out there, trying to be a host. And I did not love the people that I was working with. And it felt very fake to me, which I had no idea, you know, but it is very Hollywood. I mean, even if you're in New York. And so I actually went behind the camera. So I ended up going the production route instead. And so then I was a producer for like 10 years in New York, you know, TV, at billboards, social media, all the things. I was uh, agency side, I was client side. So I ended up doing that, which was fun. Got it. So, wow. Yeah. So you really did pursue that, really did try to then be a host and we're like, yeah, okay, this is not what I thought it would be, or this doesn't feel great. Um, But what's so funny, here we are now, and I'm like doing actually a lot of like more, you know, I mean, I guess part of it is me talking to myself on my phone, which I don't love, but every once in a while I'll get like a project or something where there's like a team and there's a shoot and I'm like, I'm really good at this actually. And I'm like, why am I so good at this? Oh, because I, you know, spent a hundred thousand dollars on a five-year education to do this. So 
<laughs> That's so funny. Uh, well, it's interesting too, because like, yeah, I was drawn to that, like wanting to be a host and like talk to these people and stuff. But yeah, like it is very, especially you get like for those sorts of TV shows, they have to ask like very specific things and they have like time limit and this and cut to commercial and that. So like, I would still have these dreams of like, maybe one day I'll have my, and I'm like, wait, it's so like, like having a podcast is so, is such a cooler way. But that wasn't a thing when we were younger, you know? Yeah. yeah, that wasn't a thing now, but I now even will sometimes flash back and like, oh yeah, would I still want that? And I'm like, I don't even think like, you know, like I would want, because no matter what kind of TV show, you're trying to fit to these limits and that and whatever. And I was like- It's very it's structured. It's very limited. Um, but yeah, we both did end up having podcasts and talking about, you're doing and doing a lot of other things. But um, so, okay. So you did then get into, you realized hosting wasn't for you. Was it automatic then? Like, let me try. And were you still in college when you realized that? Or did you get out of college, try hosting and then be like, okay, well, what do I do now if I don't like that? Yeah, I was I was out of college. I mean, I had already moved to New York full time after graduation. I was bartending to support myself because, to be clear, like I didn't I didn't grow up with money, so I was working full time bartending, going on kind of gigs. Like back in the day, it would be like Craigslist postings for things, you know, and you would show up. There'd be like a two hour wait of a hundred other people, and I mean, I did the whole. <laughs> this is hilarious to talk about. So I don't think I've ever actually talked about this on any show. <laughs> like I was like. I was like, I was a Maxim girl. I like hosted a couple of Maxim parties and like, you know, like that kind of stuff. I was in New York. I was young. I was in my 20s. I was hot, all the things. I was like, let's do all this. And like I said, I just kept getting these little gigs like that, or I'd get booked as like, you know, one of the Maxim hosts or whatever. And it was cool. There was money involved. I was like, oh, and then I just was like, I don't like this. It's just not me. It just felt very, you know, at the time I was young and whatever, and I was partying a lot. But now looking back, I'm like, I just, it felt degrading, obviously, and I just didn't love it. So I was at that time, my old boss from Spike TV actually reached out to me and said, Hey, I got brought in to essentially start from the ground up a creative department for this small company called Vitamin Water. Will you come work for me or work with us, you know, and help us build this team? And so I actually went, worked under her as a creative, like a production assistant kind of thing, and um, was part of like the original. Team. Oh, so it like happened to like work out where you were feeling like, I don't think this is for you. And then an opportunity came up and you're like, you know what? Yes. It worked out perfectly. And it was like this young, small, scrappy team, um, ragtag bunch of 20 somethings that were starting this like cool brand. Uh, it was before we got bought by Coca-Cola. So it was like still cool and young before the pleated pants took over, as we used to say. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was fun. It just was different, you know, than what I thought I wanted to do. So was that your start more in like the back, uh, back, back end? end. <laughs> <laughs> that was my, that was where I started the back end work. <laughs> uh, I do this all the time where I'm like, I say a word and I'm like, that's not a word I want. Like people can't see me. I'm like actually looking around my room right now. Like, where's the word I meant? <laughs> I think back end. I get it. What is I get it? what you're saying. <laughs> you get it. But so that is that what then like after working with vitamin water, did you stay more in the production side for a while? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got I got sucked in, you know, to the salary corporate world and it was fun and I was young. And um advertising is great when you're like young and have a ton of energy. <laughs> and then uh 10 years in after kind of bouncing around, doing agency side, a couple different things, I just like hit a wall of um 
this is not fulfilling. <laughs> I'm selling people things that they do not need. Uh, as a matter of fact, you're killing them, you know, depending on what it was I was selling. And it was right about, yeah, it's always, it's a fun like realization. I actually have a very clear memory right before I went to grad school because I started grad school um, while I was still working full time. I had a moment, I, I will not name the brand, but I, I used to be like one of the head social media people on the agency side for a non-butter butter brand. And I remember putting the phone on mute. We were having a conversation with the brand team. And I looked at my creative partner and I was like, if I have to have another conversation with a 22-year-old brand girl about how many chocolate chips should be showing in this cookie, in this shot, in order to make sure that this stupid fake butter is bought, I'm going to throw myself off of wood, like out a window. <laughs> and I was like, I think it's time to go. It was a real like, yeah, it's time. So when you had that, like, okay, I am done. I can't do this anymore. Had you already had thoughts about what else you could do or like what happened? Yeah, I, um, so probably about halfway through my 10 years of being in advertising, I started my own kind of healing journey. So I started therapy, I found yoga and meditation, and I was really kind of getting more into that world. And so- was there something that like propelled that or just, I mean, like, oh, yes, therapy, people do that. Let no, me try. I, my best friend at the time, we were sitting having drinks and I don't remember what the context of the conversation was, but I remember her saying to me, you're just so angry all the time. Why are you so angry? And I was like, I am? I am. Why am I so angry? It was just this moment. Like I'd never really had anybody reflect back to me how I showed up. That's those sorts of friends conversations are so important and I feel like they don't have it enough that people don't like actually say that, you know, like where that could have been really offensive to you. And maybe that's why people would say it, but like the fact too, and like how you can say something then yeah, made you be like, wait, what? Like go into more self-inquiry. But yeah, I find that a I was just thinking the other day, like, well, I have, wait, are there people that are going to tell me the truth about me in my life? Hello? Like that was something I was tuned into really young, actually. I remember, so I started in sound industry, or like working backstage at House of Blue Chicago is where I started to learn to do sound and I was going to college at the same time. And so I was working with mostly all guys like rock and roll, you know, like scruggy, I don't know what that word is again, dudes, whatever. They're very honest. Like we were always ribbing each other, like got thick skin, you know, smart asses, but like being honest and, and really loving. And so those were like, you know, they became like my family, my brothers. And I moved to San Diego. I got hired to work for a sound company, moved to San Diego. There were still like, I was working with mostly dudes. Uh, but, and then I don't know. It was just different. I remember being in California and making new friends with sound people and production people and not and like talking to one of my like old sound buddies and be like, nobody like calls me out on my shit. Like, <laughs> I hate this. <laughs> Let me ask you this though. Do you think that's a difference between like West Coast? I don't know. Because I have actually experienced that like macro California because I'm in California now and I have been for a while. I mean, granted, I'm like, straight up Northeasterner, right? And this Northeast kind of 
pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, winters are harsh and cold. We have to survive kind of mentality. And then you move to California and everybody's like, it's cool, man. Just like go to the ocean, you know? And I like really struggled with it because listen, I'm not trying to like stereotype, but sometimes stereotypes exist for a reason. Like my partner and I, I have this funny story. We first met, he's like from LA. I mean, he was born in Korea, but he's been here since he was three. And you can hear more about his story on the past episode. <laughs> and uh, we were like messing around. We were joking about something. And I, I go, oh, whatever. Fuck you. And he was like, oh, like looked at me this like horror, like clutch your pearls. And he was like, he was like, like can we you? not say fuck you to each other? And I was like, oh, whatever. That's like a term of endearment in New York. You know, it's just like. <laughs> I just had an aha moment with an ex of like the same thing who was like a rock and roll dude, but he's from California and was so offended when I would say. It's a legit cultural difference. Like, no, it's not a joke. And I realized like, this is a macro thing. If you're from like the East Coast or even like a Chicago, like come to these bigger cities, harsher environments, colder cities. I do feel like you bring an edge and like a realness and an honesty. And I love that about New Yorkers. It's like, say what you mean, mean what you say. And I've actually really struggled to find that here. And I would say 99% of my friends that I've made here are not from here. Probably for that reason. Yeah. No, same. And that's what like, yeah, like the people I was living, working with, most of them were like transplant Californians, but yeah, they did seem less like rough and tumble, but I don't know if it's just like being in California softens people a bit to (laughs) that. Like, yeah, no, for sure. No, me, I was noticing myself, like, am I being honest with people in my life as much as I used to be? Absolutely not about like these sorts of behavior, like calling people on their own shit lovingly. But like with the hopes of like, do you re- like <laughs> realize that? Anyway, um, Psst, Trisha here, and as I'm recording this, I am drinking a smoothie made with Sprout Living Protein Blends, and I gotta tell you, these are making such a difference in my day, making it so easy to add these nutrients to my life and to feel more alive and energized throughout the day. If you aren't familiar with Sprout Living, let me tell you about their amazing plant-based protein powders. Their blends are delicious and they have the best ingredients. What makes them different is that they avoid a lot of the unnecessary additives that many on the markets use. That means they don't use any gums, thickeners, or quote, natural flavoring. That stuff really matters. Gums are highly processed and they're often indigestible and cause bloating. And natural flavors are often not actually natural. Seriously, Google it. Aside from that, these additives that most store brands, you know, kinds that you see are completely nutritionally void. They are just filler ingredients that really provide you no benefit and can often mess your body up more. So instead, Sprout Living only uses real, powerful superfoods, adaptogens, and nootropics, which is really awesome because it makes their protein blends multifunctional, aka it's more than just a protein powder. You can really taste the difference behind this level of thoughtfulness and purity. There's no weird aftertaste. It's not too sweet. It's not gross. The taste is spot on. One of my favorites is the mindful matcha. And if you like matcha, it's incredible. Right now I'm drinking the vanilla lucuma. I've been loving the chocolate maca one. 
Uh, sometimes when I don't feel like I have enough time to just throw a couple things in the blender, I've been using a shaker cup with just two scoops of the chocolate maca and water, and it's so freaking good. Just tastes like chocolate milk, and then I'm getting like 19 grams of plant-based protein, all of these good things so easily. So they have a bunch of different flavors. It makes it super easy to find something that you'll love and to beat that blender boredom. Go check them out at sproutliving.com and they gave me a code, claimit20 for 20% off your order. Again, use code claimit20 for 20% off your order. Seriously, this small thing of adding two scoops of their protein blend into my day has really made a difference to how I start my day and how I feel all day long. So try it out, sproutliving.com. Use code claimit20 for 20% off. I got called out. That was basically what we were talking about, being like a New Yorker and getting called out and uh, went to therapy uh, and it worked out perfectly. Therapy, ding, ding, ding. There we go. Yes, you were sitting with the friend and the girlfriend. (laughs) Yeah, and she actually was already seeing somebody. So she had started seeing somebody, um, a therapist. And so she gave me her information. And um, I mean, she she changed my entire, she changed the trajectory of my entire life because she was and is phenomenal. She's actually like a colleague and a friend of mine now at this point. And she just opened my eyes to, I mean, to everything, like just to the world and to things outside of myself. And it was a transformational two-year journey with her. I mean, I went back and forth, but eventually just, you know, I did my yoga teacher training. Do I want to do that? No, I don't really want to do that full-time. And then I did like a yoga therapy training. Do I want to do that? No, I love it, but I don't want to do it full-time. I did a nutrition program. Was this all while you were still doing the corporate marketing stuff? So you had gone to therapy, you're working that, but then you get into yoga so much that you're like, oh, I'll do teacher training. It's like breadcrumbs. This is what I actually work with clients a lot on, right? A lot of people come to me, it's like career transition or what do I want to do with my life? And I just call it breadcrumbs. It's like, you don't need to know if you're on step C, you don't need to know what step Z looks like. You just got to look at D, right? And really what D is, is just what, what lights you up, what makes you feel like a sense of aliveness. Okay. Lean into that. You know, even if you are working in something else, just allow yourself to kind of get obsessed with something that makes you feel fascinated and invigorated. And so that's kind of what I was doing for like five years. I just kind of kept taking little trainings and learning more and, and exploring and it was actually my therapist that came to me at one session and she said, I want you to look at this school in California called Pacifica. I think you would really be interested in it. And so she gave me a brochure back in the day when brochures were a thing. And <laughs> and I was just like immediately like, holy shit, this place looks amazing. So I took a trip out. I was in a relationship at the time with a band guy <laughs> that was not <laughs> going well and <laughs> shocker. And uh I took a trip, solo trip out to California by myself and I went to this school and it was one of those knowings where I got out of the car on the campus. For anybody who doesn't know, Pacifica Graduate Institute is in the mountains of Carpinteria, which is by Santa Barbara. And it used to be an old like Jesuit church and school for the Jesuit, like where they would train them. And before that it was native land. I mean, everything was. And so it has like a very intense spiritual kind of feeling to the land. And I got out of the car and I looked around and I had like, I was overwhelmed by emotion and I like my hairs on my arms stood up and I just was like, I have to be here. Like this is where I'm meant to be. And so in pretty short succession, I applied while I was still working full time. 
And was that when your therapist gave you the brochure, had you had any sort of conversations about like, well, I guess she knew that you were sort of like exploring all these things, obviously, and knew you weren't necessarily happy in your corporate job. So, but like, was there conversation about like looking into exploring you becoming a therapist? Or I thought like, I wanted to be. And was that's, that I mean, that's what you thought. Yeah. Yeah. I did think I wanted to be an, a one-on-one therapist. I thought, I, you know, I want to do what you do is really, which a lot of people. Got it. So you had been having that conversation, but she, she <laughs> you could have stayed in New yes. York though. Um, yes, but, and I, the reason why, so I did look at schools in New York. Uh, and this was actually a, one of the biggest kind of fights and the endings, I guess, of my relationship at the time is that he felt like I was using this as an excuse to leave. But really, there still is no school in New York or on the East Coast, period, that approaches therapy in the way that there are two schools that do, both in California. So my school was a depth-oriented school. It's a Jungian school. There's only one other school, which is in San Francisco. So they're both in California. And I wanted a more soul-based approach to therapy. I didn't want a behavioral school. I had no interest in CBT. I I could argue the empirical data of CBT with anybody all day. Um, it's very biased. Who's paying for the research? Like we think we know. We think CBT is like the end all be all to therapy. It's not. And listen, I'm not saying I don't use it sometimes, like, but I, I look at CBT as almost like You've got a bullet hole, it's bleeding out. You got to put a Band-Aid or a bandage on the bullet hole. That's CBT. Let's get things to functioning. Once we've got things functioning, we got to get in and heal the bullet hole. Otherwise, that Band-Aid is just going to keep bleeding through, right? So it's very important that it be used, but it can't be the only thing used if we want true transformation and healing. So I was very adamant. Like I couldn't find anything else anywhere. So I knew I had to be going to school in California. It was just like what was calling. So how did you know that back then? Like, was Because you had just gone to this one therapist, right? And was it the style that she did? Or how did you, like, I'm guessing you must be the type of person that, okay, I think I want to be a therapist. You're saying this. So were you researching all the different types of therapy? And that's why you had this. Like knowing? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I already like, okay, well, I can't just go to these schools because I know that this isn't the way for me or something like that. You know, like, yeah, because I would assume, oh, you just, okay, I know I want to be a therapist. Then like, let me just find a school that I want to go to, like without, you know, if you hadn't been through type, all sorts of types of therapy yourself and like, no, I don't like this. I do like this. Like, that's what I'm drawn to. Here's what I'll say about myself is that I'm also, I'm very, I can be, I was a producer, right? So I like to like lay things out, compare everything, make charts and lists. I am, I'm very masculine, usually very energetically like masculine forward. I'm very analytical. I'm going to compare the shit out of everything. Uh, and yet, as I'm making all my lists and doing all my pros and cons lists, I'm also very intuitive. So all of the major decisions that I've ever really made in my life, I made the yes, I'm doing this after having the felt sense of like, this is what I have to do, right? So whether it was the university I went to, like I got this feeling when I went to Northeastern, whether it was moving to New York, whether it was my relationships, I always had this ability to be like, ooh, what's that? Oh, that's telling me something. And so there was just, I went to all these schools in New York and I was just like, "Mm -mm, no, flat, boring, dry, clinical, let's treat it with medication, throw some pills at it. Like it just, there was no life and soul. And probably because I was coming up through yoga 
and more Buddhist psychology already because she practiced a lot of Buddhist psychology. I knew that that was what was stirring me and was healing me. And so I knew that that's kind of where I wanted to go with it. You know, I needed to be more soul-based. Got it. That makes sense. So she, and had she gone to this school? She hadn't. She actually went to a school in New York, which was folding. And so that's why I, I thought about going to her school. So she actually, at the time, she was not a licensed, so it's uh, LMFT is the abbreviation or the acronym. She was actually not a licensed therapist. She was what they called... Um, a pseudo spiritual counselor. So the school that she went to, it was depth oriented, but you actually ended up becoming ordained. And so you can become a counselor if you're ordained, right? This is like marriage counselors, like Christian marriage counselors and stuff are not actually licensed therapists. They're Christian counselors. Um, but it was a very spiritually based program, not Christian spiritual, but like Christianity may be part of it, right? But more spiritual in the larger esoteric sense. So she knew of Pacifica because she had colleagues that had gone there. It's a very similar kind of approach. Got it. So you got there, were like, this is for me. And then, yeah, so you uprooted your entire life. Yeah. 10 months later, I was commuting back and forth once a month, every month from New York to LA. Oh, because was that how would like course? Yeah, yeah, it was. It's a school. So the school itself is actually made for people like that. So there were people that we would come in from. I have a couple of friends from Chicago, from Portland, from New York, from all these different places. So it was like you would spend one long weekend a month on campus, and then like a week in the summer, and then the rest of it was all done oh. virtual reading, writing papers, all that stuff. So um, you would come together for a very intense short session together. So it's a lot about the the cohort. Is like so much of the program because you get so close with these like 30 people. Um, but I was commuting beside, get on a plane. Thir- Got it. So you didn't move to California, but still big change. 10 months in, in your life. Yeah. It was like 10 months later, I was working full time. I was doing all this. And I hit this point of like, oh my God, this is too much. I can't do this anymore. And so made the decision to end the relationship, pack my bags, get on a suit, get on a plane with like two suitcases and just rip the band-aid off. <laughs> and did you move? To where the school was? I moved or did to LA. you move mm-hmm. to LA? Yeah. So, yeah. Just like, cause that's close enough. Yeah. Well, my, my, a lot of my friends, so my co host on my podcast, who's also like my best friend and being production. Yeah. Danae right? lived here. She's in, she's in LA. And so I moved into her guest house, which was convenient. Uh, but I also kept my job. So I actually moved out here. I convinced my company in New York, they had a, a satellite office in LA. I convinced my company in New York to allow me to be basically like, we were trying to build a studio on the West Coast. And so I was essentially like the new business lead. And so I came out here to kind of create a studio out here. And I did that for probably six months while I was still going to school full time. And that was when I was like, holy shit, this is way too much. I'm doing like five jobs and ended up just being... Got it. So when you had that moment with the not butter company and the chocolate chips, like that wasn't your momentum to quit. That was your momentum of, I need a next, like, what the heck am I doing next? Cause I can't do this anymore. And then you found yourself this space to be like getting your degree and still stayed with that company, but just sort of like, you knew you were working on, this is what's next. It's that breadcrumb, right? It was like, I need something that's going to fill me up and fascinate me. And this is clearly not it. And so where can I, you know, I need to pay my bills. Like I don't come from money. I needed to support myself. So where can I find that while I'm still also paying my bills? And so I did that as long as I could until I hit a point where I couldn't anymore. And then, you know what, at 30, I don't know, one years old when I finally made the legit leap where I cut off and I left the the career. 
Because I mean, I was in it for 10 years. So I was like director level, you know, I was making six figures. Like I was doing really well and it didn't matter. I was so unhappy that I was like, well, looks like I'm going to live on credit cards for a while and take out a little extra in my loans to live on. And I racked up credit card debt and I just said, screw it. Like, this is what I have to do. And so I did it. Um, you know, I didn't have kids or anything to worry about. It just felt like I can do this. I know what struggle feels like and I know that I come out the other side okay. And so I just did it. Yeah. I've definitely done that a couple of times in my life and it's definitely much different than when you have kids and like, yeah, yeah. Like when you have kids and like a mortgage and things. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. So it was much easier to be in the in-between times. But it was like, but knowing, yeah. All right. I can It'll figure work out. this out. I can pull this off. Um, so, so that was you, how long was it until you like graduated or in that, was it a program too? Cause with getting your psychology degree, don't you have to do a certain amount? Isn't it different with that degree? Like there's a certain amount of like, what is that? Not like um, interning hours. I was going to say, I was like, it's not necessarily interning, but I guess it is. Interning, yeah. They call it like, intern. Yeah. So yeah. So the school itself was close to three years, which is actually longer than most oh, wow. therapy yeah. schools. Um, and so it's a three-year school, but the last, like you're only in school full-time the first, well, not even full-time, but the first year. And then starting in the second year is when you start to intern. And so you're going to school while you're also interning. California and New York, and actually randomly Utah, have the three most stringent. Um, so it's 3,000 hours, interning hours. Utah's like 4,500. It's something insane like that. Um, so it's 3,000 intern hours before you can actually even get to the place of like taking a licensing exam. So it's a lot of free labor. It's a lot of working with very high risk underserved populations that deserve much more well-trained clinicians. But you know, the way that our society works, the, they don't get the help they need. They get the interns that are working for free. Not to say that we can't be helpful, but it would be a little bit different if they were working with people who are really seasoned, well-seasoned. So it's a tough, I mean, listen, therapy, the world of therapy is, is tough because most people, by the time they get through their hours are burnt out before they even start actually their own career. Um, it is definitely a churn and burn type of industry, very underpaid, very overworked social workers, anybody working in mental health, uh, community mental health, you know, I got, I got offered a director job and it was like $40,000 a year in LA. And I was like, you must be joking. But that is the unfortunate reality of our mental health world. We are very underpaid and very overworked. <laughs> and so how long did you go before like collecting income again? Well, <laughs> I mean, again, I'm going to add, I'm going to chalk this up to a little bit of my like New Yorker kind of like scrappy, also came up, you know, single parent, no money lifestyle. I worked the system a bit. I actually... So I was working in a nonprofit, which everybody kind of does to get your hours. And I kind of like made, essentially made a role for myself. They they asked me to be part of this, like this launch of this program within the high schools that they worked with to work with kids, which you have to work with kids as part of your training, teenagers. And they wanted me to be part of it. They wanted me to be one of the leaders. And so I said, yes. And they were going to offer me money, hourly money to do it, but they were not going to offer me hours. And I was like, no, 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 that's not what we're doing here. And I <laughs> kind of essentially said to my supervisor, oh yeah, that's not going to work. You're going to pay me and you're going to sign off on my hours, period, hard stop. Like I'm not going to accept that answer. And I essentially just busted my ass and I worked like $10 an hour kind of thing. And I, But I worked so much because I needed the money so bad 
that I actually maxed out the amount of hours I was able to get when I was still in school. <laughs> so I like finished my hours probably two years before a lot of people did because I was like pushing and hungry. And I was like, well, I gotta, I gotta eat. So $10 is better than nothing, you know? It's Trisha here and making sure you know about the ways I am here to support you and empower you besides this podcast. One, I have a daily inspiration app. You can download it in the app store. It's called Own Your Awesome. It's hundreds of powerful thoughts and affirmations you can come to at any time. Get the message you are meant to see. You can also set a timer inside the app when you go to the daily and you will get a reminder to go check it every day. Two, I've got my products. And right now I have limited availability on the best-selling insulated tumblers. They are by Simple Modern, which if you follow Tinks or Liz Moody or the Skinny Confidential, everybody raves about these cups. Well, I have phrases engraved into the cups. My powerful mantras and affirmations. They keep cold drinks cold all day long, hot drinks hot. They come with a straw and a flip top lid. Lots of all other products too, shop.yourjoyalgist.com. I also have a from the heart community where I am sending you four to five times a week direct to your inbox, and you can go through all the archives either on the Substack app or online. If you go to trishahuffman.substack.subscribe, you can see the options there. Choose a paid membership. That's where you get the four to five times messages from me right to you. There's short audio, way different than the podcast, and written messages that come to you to support and empower you. I also offer individual coaching for a variety of different things for whether you're in the public eye in some way or wanting to put yourself out there, your work, your art, how to ground yourself be connected to you, trust yourself, have confidence in what you're doing and how you're doing it. And I also work with people, no matter what your life looks like, to find daily joy and fulfillment, no matter what's going on. So to unshould yourself, to really have this deep connection to yourself and uncover all the ways that you have been telling yourself that you are not enough, that you haven't been enough, so that you can be grounded in who you are and show up for your life and have that connection to daily joy and fulfillment. So check out all my offerings at yourjoyologist.com and you can always send me a DM at underscore Trisha Huffman if you wanna chat more about any of the things. All right, let's get back to the episode. So once you like graduated and are free to see your own clients and stuff, that seems like such can be like, oh my gosh, now what? <laughs> I mean, I worked for a not, I worked at a private practice for a while. Uh, so I was working on like two older guys here in, in Sherman Oaks who like had their own practice and they were lovely. And, and was that just sort of like find through basic, like job listings they were both and stuff Pacifica. or connections like, Oh, we're needing another therapist to come yeah. to our practice, but got it. So, but since they were from Pacifica, Reference they referrals, that kind of stuff. Um, and I got a job there. So I got to start doing private practice instead of like community mental health. And so you build up a clientele. And then when I, I actually left, I was working there. Um, I got pregnant with my partner, obviously this, this partner, hang on, I'm going to sneeze. Nope. Okay. <laughs> I was like, wait, <laughs> 
So I got pregnant and I actually, I knew that I wanted to kind of transition out of working for somebody else and transition into working for myself. And it felt like a really appropriate way to do it because I was going to have to leave eventually anyway for leave. So uh, I, I use that kind of as the opportunity to like close up, you know, end with a lot of the clients that were in a good place and and make my transition to working for myself. And what made you want to, because that sounds like a pretty good situation. Like you graduate and go right into a private practice where there's clients coming to you at probably a decent rate, better than like social uh, or whatever, nonprofit work and stuff like that. So like, what was what part of you that was like, wow, this probably is the ideal for someone who just graduated and... I don't, I want to work by my, for myself. I mean, I hate to say it was money related, but a lot of it was. I mean, again, the system is set up so much so to take advantage of new and early clinicians. You're giving like 40, if not more, depends. Everybody's different. They can set up their own kind of rates. I was giving like 40% of what I was making to them. And then I was paying them for supervision on top of it out of pocket. Sounds like a hairstylist situation. Pretty much. <laughs> Whereas like your indentured servitude yes. really is like <laughs> you either rent a chair or like yes, then you're like the percentage of your earnings. It's like rid- it's ridiculous. <laughs> like you literally can't survive. I have not been a hairstylist, but just like, yeah, I've had that like those relationships where it sounds like, oh wow, you're in a private practice in Sherman Oaks of LA. It seems like, yeah, but that money is not all coming to you. You get a percentage. And you know, the poor clients, like clients don't understand. I mean, a lot of places insurance is similar. And this is what a lot of people don't understand about. And I know that it's frustrating that a lot of therapists don't take insurance uh, unless they work within a, like a clinic because it's the same thing. It's like, I, you know, you, the client might be paying, let's say a hundred dollars out of pocket. And yes, that's a lot of money. But what you don't know is that your therapist is only getting like 25 or $35 of that. Oh, wow. If you're, if you're going through insurance. So like it, it's, re- it is insane. This industry is so backwards. So I just was like, I, I'm, I know I can do this. I was, you know, I just knew I could work for myself. I was kind of, I had the business sense, obviously I'd done marketing for 10 years. Like I, so that actually did set me up in a way that a lot of my fellow therapist didn't have is because I had this 10 years actually of a career that I knew would really help me grow a business and on my own. And so I just, I leaned into that. Not to mention I should give credit where it's due. My partner was already a therapist for like 10 years before I met him and was already doing it by himself. And so I learned a lot from him and he was very open to teaching me his ways. <laughs> so that was helpful. Yeah. I didn't know where you all met in your journey. So like, yeah, had you, I am, did you move, like begin a relationship with him once you were in LA and you were like in school or? I was almost done with school. We actually met like four or five months before I graduated. Um, so I had been in LA for maybe about a year or so before I met him, but I, yeah, I was like close to the end. So I was in that stage with most therapists get to where you're interning, you're working in community mental health, and you're like, okay, now what? What's next? How do I do this? How do I survive? And I was already kind of in that tumultuous phase that we all go through as therapists when I met him. And he was like, let me show you how I did it. And I was like, it just felt like kind of a very synchronistic timing to meet him because he really forged his own path. I mean, he's done amazing things in this world. So it was very lucky for me to have met him at the point in my life that I did. So did you end up modeling your practice now sort of after his, which yes, he was a previous guest and um, 
But so is it like you are fully licensed, but you also sort of maybe use the coaching, like you don't have to be like like you can work with people no matter where they are and like that sort of thing like where you're sort of selling your services as a coaching, but you're a therapist, but you can get a- around all the like legal. Exactly. Well, that was the thing. I mean, I think he was so good at being like, okay, here's the line and let me show you how to tightrope this line. Right. And this is years before. I mean, I started working with clients online almost three years before COVID happened. So now 90% of my colleagues are working online. Now Instagram therapists are like a thing and they, they're all therapists slash coaches, but like that was not a thing when he first started, you know, and that wasn't even a thing when I first started. The different state boards were very, very protective of like, you can only work in state. Telehealth is like a very specific niche and there's all these laws and rules around it. And it was very restrictive. And I remember the first client that I saw as a coach who was out of, it was in the Midwest and he was in a really, really bad spot in his life. And I remember thinking like, he couldn't find any other therapist at all. Like he was, I took him on, it was like very, it was low pay um, to sometimes almost no pay. And he was homeless at one point. And I was working with him remotely because all he had was his phone to do sessions on because at one point he was in a homeless shelter. And I just remember thinking like we were making such amazing progress and we were working together. And to be clear, I had him also on the ground with a team of support. Like I wasn't working with somebody that was high risk out of state and just willy nillying it. You know, as a coach, I also knew that I needed to make sure he had a team on the ground and we, we established that. But I thought to myself, okay, so my options are either I say no to this person and then he has zero support or I can at least work with him in a coaching capacity, which I'm very clear about where I go and where I don't go in that capacity. Um, and I can provide him some support, right? And also make sure that I'm advocating for him and I can have people on the ground that I'm reaching out to and speaking with that I know are taking care of him when I'm not able to. So, I mean, that that story might even get me in a little bit of trouble, which is sad, but it's it's just the way that the bureaucracy of it all works, you know? Yeah. Well, okay. So now let's get more into your relationship. So yeah, you ended up becoming a licensed therapist. There's that. Licensed therapist. What, I'm like, what is the proper? I'm like, I know, it's so different in every state too, right? I'm an LMFT, which. <laughs> what you, what you want to call yourself yeah, or what you are. In though. California, that's a licensed marriage and family therapist is, is what the. And ended up dating uh, and having a kid. Are you guys married? You're married. No, you're not married. Okay. I didn't think you were. But we'll assume. <laughs> like, so being in a relationship, yeah, being in a relationship, having a kid, having a partnership with another therapist, and you guys just came out with a book together. What inspired you to write this book together? Because he, this is fourth, his like- I think, yeah, his fourth, fourth book. book. Yeah. I mean, again- he- <laughs> And the last book was like, what was it about being single, right? Single, single on by purpose. choice. Single on purpose. I said single by choice. Close People by. don't realize, right? Books, you're writing them and you're releasing them and they don't come out for years. And so he wrote single on purpose. No, I feel like in our conversation when that book came out, he was like, yes, he had a bit like whatever. That was it. But yeah, so it is interesting though that yeah, your one book is single on purpose and then the next one are perfect actually. It's the transgression or like the kind of progression of it, I guess. Yeah. He, his joking, the way he jokes about it is like, he was actually trying to be single on purpose when he met me. And that was actually part of, you know, the beginning of our relationship was actually pretty rocky because he was like very ambivalent and there was a lot of back and forth and 
Like, he's like, no, I want to be single. I was like, that's cool. I told myself I was going to be single. Get away. I Yeah, I like you, but get away. <laughs> that's exactly what it was. And I essentially was like, yeah, shit or get off the pot. Like, I'm not, you know what I mean? I knew what I wanted. I was like, I'm not interested. I did. I had, I was single in my 20s in New York. Like, I had my fun. I did my thing. And I basically laid it out. And after like four months of back and forth like that, just kind of like weird ambivalence and I essentially had that conversation with him and he was like, okay, no, wait, like I actually really do want this. And I was like, all right, well, you better, you better show it because this is the last kind of straw for me. Like I'm not interested in, I talk about this in the book, but I, I say that, you know, one of my, one of my issues for lack of a better term, I guess that I struggle with throughout my entire life was this constant desire for other people to choose me. And the feeling of other people choosing me, I mean, it's so codependent, right? But it's like, that was what gave me my sense of purpose, my sense of self, my sense of um, belonging. And it was really through that experience with him that I actually came into this feeling of like, no, I choose me. And this is what that looks like. And so I know I'm awesome. I know I'm amazing. Like you're either in this, you're not, but I'm not going to beg you to choose me. So that was like, what was happening in that time where like, yeah, he was trying to be single on purpose, but also I guess liked you guys were dating somewhat and you had this moment of like, like, I'm sick of this. Like, yeah, like I'm not going to like wait around for him to decide if he wants to be in a relationship or not. Yeah. And it was interesting because, you know, I would say I'd had two other long-term and then another like pretty short but intense relationship as far as relationships go prior to him. And one of the things I say in the book is that all three of those, it was very like instantly they were obsessed with me. Like instantly we were like attached at the hip instantly, you know, like two weeks in like professing their love kind of thing. And so those were the kind of people that I was like drawing into my sphere were these people who would be like, Oh my God, you're the one obsessed, like very, very quickly. And so he was obviously very different. And it makes sense to me, obviously, in hindsight, why those kind of men were who I was drawing, because that was what I needed. You know, even if I was unsure of them, it didn't matter because they were so sure of me that it made me feel important. It made me feel loved. Interesting. Oh my, I'm sure so many people would relate to that, right? Where it's like, maybe this person isn't for me, but wow. Like, sure does feel good to get love bombed. They really like, let's be real, until it's not good anymore. I stayed. I stayed in one relationship for a little bit because of that. Like, I didn't even want to date the person, but it was so freaking nice to be adored. I I hadn't really had that experience. So I was like, all right, maybe I will try this. I mean, let's be real. It feels kind of good. <laughs> and then I couldn't deal with it. It felt great. I still, I'm like, I haven't, I'm grateful I had that experience because I honestly have not <laughs> since <laughs> calling in more of that in my life to come. But yeah, like I can see how it's like hard to sort of be like, yeah, never mind. This is nice. But mm -hmm. well, it's usually nice in the beginning, right? But love bombing doesn't usually continue to be nice. I mean, there's there's a lot of psychological reasonings behind why somebody does that two weeks into a relationship, right? And then if you actually try to stay in that relationship long term, you start to discover how not nice that feeling can be because of the why. <laughs> mm. So, um, okay. So you had this talk with him and he was like, okay, I'm in. And I mean, I kind of had him prove it a little bit because I didn't really believe it, obviously. Why would I in the beginning? And, uh, yeah, so we, um, 
What was interesting though, I guess to kind of go back to like how we met, what was interesting is that I always like to say that I manifested him because he was kind of another knowing in my life. And so it was also frustrating because I was like, no, I know there's something here, but you almost don't see that there's something here. And so then I started questioning like my intuition. I started questioning like the universe. I started questioning like, so why was this person? Because I had that feeling again with him that I had had so many times in my life. And so then I was like questioning everything that I thought I knew about trusting myself and this feeling. So um, it was it was tough. But yeah, he, then he was all in. And then we actually, um, we ended up getting pregnant accidentally. I was on birth control. It happens. And uh, only eight months or nine months into the relationship. And it was like, a, oh shit. Okay. Well, I never wanted children to be completely honest. Never wanted them. I was very adamant that I did not want children. And he was kind of like, eh, whatever. If it happens, it happens. He was older. And so we were like, well, I guess we're at that point in our lives where we could make it work. So let's try. And then we ended up miscarrying. And but it was in that in that time period that there was a lot of change around like, oh shit, like maybe I do want this. Maybe I want this with him. And kind of him having a similar realization. And so it was definitely a catalyst pushing us forward, I guess, on this journey together. Right. It made you have like real future life talks about this thing that was happening. And then it didn't end up happening. Well, so yeah, what was that like then too? Like miscarrying after you had sort of like it, that had changed your minds about a lot of things probably, right? Yeah. I, um, it was funny because I, I was still kind of ambivalent about having kids, but I was in this weird like, huh, that's weird. Like, do I want that? I wasn't really sure. But that was even new for me because I was so hell-bent on it's not happening. And then um, we were like, well, let's just see what happens. We're not going to try, but we're not going to not try. Like, let's just kind of give it to God, if you will, you know, that saying. And uh, like six months went by and nothing happened. And I was like, oh, that's weird because it happened when I was on birth control. So why wouldn't it happen when I wasn't, you know? And I was actually in a meditation retreat for my birthday. And I was like two days into the retreat and I was like deep in it. And I got this like very, very clear inner voice kind of happening where it was just like, I want this with him. And it wasn't like, I want kids. It was just like, I want to do this with him. And uh, I came home from that retreat and I remember being like, crying and feeling really uncomfortable in the vulnerability of all of it. Like, this is so not me. I don't want kids, but now I do. And I want to do this with you. And it was a very awkward situation for me. And two days later, we actually went to the mountains. We went to Big Bear for a week. He was writing Miserable Fuck at the time. And two days later, we were in the mountains and we actually conceived our daughter that week, which is, I mean, I don't care what anybody believes, but I'm very much a believer in like, the timing was divine and, you know, the universe essentially said, okay, well, you want it now. So now that you're ready, it's time. And so uh, I love that story. It's sort of, I think, I, I don't know. I feel like that sort of stuff happens often and it's fun to be like, yeah, like why not believe in the magic of life in the universe and how things are connected? Maybe not all things are connected <laughs> for all people, but. Um, but what's wrong with, with actually seeing the beauty in it when it is, you know? Yeah. So what, yeah, like what inspired you guys to write this book together? We, he was already thinking about doing a relationship book and we had really talked, had a lot of conversations around how, 
wasn't it interesting that we, I always say I should probably count the number of chapters in the book, but let's just say the top 10 issues that we were seeing when we were working with couples as clinicians were also the same 10 issues that we were struggling with as a couple ourselves. And essentially this idea of like, you're not that special. <laughs> we all struggle with the same shit, you know? And uh, obviously we're coming at it from a different angle because we are applying skills and tools and techniques in our own relationship. Um, but we're also human. And that was really important. You know, that's obviously something that John's always been very big on, but it was really important for us to write this book from a place of like, we're in this with you. And like, maybe our story will help you versus like, we're the expert and this is how you should do it, which just always feels very yucky. I don't like the word expert, period. Especially when it comes to and I don't like the right. word should. Should an period. expert. <laughs> like, it's just like, it, it's icky. It's like, says who? Like, who gets to tell you? Like, especially on life stuff. Like, you're an expert? Like, why? You know? So that was kind of the catalyst for it. It was like, well, let's see if we, by sharing our story, it can actually be of service to other people. And so it 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 came about very fast and very fluidly. It was like, John always says that sometimes he'll get to a point where he turns in a manuscript and it's like he forgot. He doesn't remember writing it. And that was like a similar kind of sensation. It was like, it just felt so fluid. We were like in a Google doc, just like adding things as we went. And it was just kind of like, poof, here it is. And I don't know. I'm proud of it. It's like, I think it's, um, I think it's a good come with you instead of at you. Like John says for couples work that I haven't really seen. So I, I, yeah, I haven't seen the book, so I don't know, but like, so what you're saying, it sounds like, well, I guess I've seen the, t- <laughs> thank you very much. I have seen the cover of the book, which I love that like straight ahead style, <laughs> but I haven't like gotten into it. But yeah, just the way that you're describing it, what I make up is like, yeah, we make so much things harder for ourselves as humans by like blaming ourselves for things or like, you know, and I'm all about like, yeah, it doesn't matter how much success you get. You have the dream career, this much money that we're humans. We're going to have doubts, fears, shame, struggle, guilt, inner judgments, comparisons, like all that stuff will still come up. We just get better at like seeing it and working through it. And so it sounds like it might be similar for relationships, which I find too, we can feel like we got our shit together as a human, as an individual. Yeah, I got it all worked out. And then in a relationship, then it's like, everything's fucked again. Like, oh, here comes my, you know, like it just like, it's, it can be so, I think in so many ways in new relationships and older relationships, you get into these habits and then you don't like want to have the conversations or these things. Oh, wait, I realize I haven't been talking about this or honest about this. And then, so how do you start? But then also like starting a relationship can be so confronting of like all the ways we think we're good. And then like in a relationship, like how the not enoughness and all the like, all your shit comes up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest, like the through line really through the entire book is owning your shit. So one of the the biggest and most consistent themes that we see in working with couples is you come in and you point the other person and you say, fix them. They're broken. They're the reason why we're having all these problems, right? And that is the very sad reality of why so many relationships suffer and end is this like incapacity to take ownership without allowing it to take you to a place of shame, right? Like we are not taught growing up, like we're not taught to ownership. We're not taught to apologize. We're not taught, you know, and then this is a lot of stuff that I struggle with. He struggles with. I mean, I remember when we first met, I still struggle with this and I probably always will. 
we really had to suss out my struggle with when you come to me and say, you know, you said this thing that hurt my feelings or you did this thing that I want to talk about. I'm immediately equating that to you are bad. Like you fucked up, you're bad, you're unlovable, you're, you know, not enough, all of these things. It's like I have, I still have, but I had even more back then, a really hard time with sussing out the you did something bad with you are bad. And that is a, that's true for a lot of us. And um, especially if we grew up with parents who themselves didn't apologize, you know, or, you know, didn't admit to their imperfections or whatever. And so it's a sickness in, in a lot of relationships, not just romantically, right? But like all relationships, it, societally, in politics. I mean, we're just, we're running around pointing the finger at everybody else versus like looking in the mirror and owning our part. And so that's what really we get down to every, you know, we go through it topic by topic, but a lot of the the meat and potatoes of each of the topics is like, okay, so what in this can you own? Because also let's let's kick the codependency habit of like, well, it's them and I need to fix them and it's not about me. No, no, no. Work on you. The relationship will ultimately change no matter what if you work on you. Whether or not that relationship changes for the better or for worse, you stay or you don't stay, that's not what we're talking about. But the relationship is going to change if you change you, right? Not change as in like there's something wrong with you, but just strengthen self-awareness and all of these tools. So that that is really, I think, the most important through line that you'll take away. Yeah, I love that. And um, yeah, it's like the owning our shit, it doesn't mean like you're owning your shit. And like, so that means you're wrong and you're terrible and everything's your fault. But like, oh, right. So that was that happened and they acted like that. And that's how I feel. Well, oh, but what about like, yeah, like where am I in this? And how have I like, you know, how have I created that this is or like, or allowed this to happen too? That's just like, yeah, like seeing your own part in it. I know that reminded me, like I get frustrated with my kids. They're like six and four, oh, five and seven almost now. Oh, the ages are coming. But like trying to like teach them like the personal responsibility, like they'll get caught up in like wanting to blame each other of like, you know, like one's, um, I don't know if this relates at all, but I just like had this moment of like, oh, one kid's crying. Oh, so-and-so did this, whatever. And the other kid is just like, no, 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 no. Like they're so set on defending themselves. And this is what's happened. And I said, I don't actually care what's happened. Somebody's hurting right now. Like whether it was an accident or whatever happened, like I don't want to hear you guys yelling at me of like, this is what's happened. No, I didn't do it. And you're defending yourself. Like she's crying because she's hurt. Like, can we see like, are you okay? Or like this? I was like, I don't actually like, <laughs> I don't like want to hear you fighting about who did what, but like that sucks that like someone's hurting right now and you're just so set on defending yourself because you're afraid you're going to get in trouble. And I'm like, I don't, you're not going to get in trouble. Like I want you to understand. Like, it's so shame-based though, which is so sad. Right. And it's like, you know, our as beings, like our ego construct, I mean, the ego's entire purpose is to self-protect, right? And so if my ego is saying that if I admit to this thing, then I'm, I'm not self-protecting, right? Like I have to admit that there is something about me that I need to take ownership of, then like, hell no, like I'm going to defend to the death, right? And that is, um, it, again, it causes so many of our, of our conflicts in life is this incapacity to look and say, oh, I can actually admit to this thing and still not say like, I am bad, I am unworthy. And also I can also own my part. And it's not saying that what they said or did is okay. Because we get very like preachy. It's this very like righteous place where like, 
there's something in our brains that say, well, if I say that, okay, you know what? I shouldn't have said that. The way that I said that was wrong. I apologize. That somehow I'm justifying their actions that led to me speaking to them that way. Mm-hmm. It's not a tit for tat, right? It's just a simple process of I can admit and own my peace because that's all I have control over actually. And that that's going to deepen the safety and the respect and the relationship for the other person to potentially do the same thing. But it is so shame-based. I mean, it's fascinating to see it even in little kids because shit, my kid's two and a half and she does the same thing. And it's like, where do you learn this so young, right? I know. And when I'm like, I'm, I'm like, what? Like, or, and it could be like, wow, did I like yell at you once for something? And so this happened and then like, whatever, like, so it's like, it could even come for a reason, but just to like, see that, like this need in ourselves to be like, <gasps> I have to make sure that they don't see me as like bad or wrong in this. So I'm going to defend myself to the death when I'm like, I'm not you're. I didn't, I'm just like, are you okay? Other child who's crying? Like, I'm not saying you're bad or wrong or this. And like, she's spending so much energy defending herself. And I'm like, whatever happened happened. Like, are you okay? And are you okay? Like, are you both okay? Like, let's talk about just such an interesting thing that I think, yeah, we carry with us of this need to like deeply defend ourselves, even when inside we could be like, I don't know if like this, but it's like, what does it mean if I like admit this? Uh, Oh, humans. humans. (laughs) We're complicated creatures. (laughs) Um, okay. Uh, well, wait, in the name of the book is it's not me, it's you, which obviously is our, which is like exactly that people always coming in and being like, it's not me, it's them. Right. Oh, the last thing I was going to say too, is I make up their space for, cause I think this can be challenging too. If you are in a relationship and you are actively working on yourselves in the relationships, then it can feel as if you're not allowed to be like, yeah, I know this relationship isn't working out. And I want to leave it. You know what I mean? Like, do you ever feel like that can happen for people that it's like, okay, I committed to working on it. So we just have to keep working and working and not being able to see, okay, I can see my part in it and I can see this. And I don't think this is their best relationship for me anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think it can go both ways. I think I see so often in our society, people pairing up and staying with partners or pairing up with partners that they believe are the one, which we talk about the one being bullshit in the book, and how this idea of the one can on one hand be like an escape hatch, like an eject button, because if you somehow in some way don't match up with exactly what I expect or want or like the butterflies in any way minimize, well, clearly you're not the one, Let let me bail. So you'll see a lot of that. Oh, like, oops, I was wrong about that. Boop. <laughs> exactly. Like quitting too early or something or like, and then just let me go find the other, the one and then, oh, that didn't work out. And yeah. Then- so that's kind of like the one side of it. And then the other side is really what you're saying, which is I have to keep working at this no matter what. I will say that both of those feel like two sides of the same coin to me. And really that has to do with self-abandonment. I mean, it has to do with not listening and being in tune and in touch with self, Right and not really acting from a place of love, but rather acting from a place of fear and from a place of shoulds, which you talk about. Like it's all societal. It's like what I should do, how I should live, the boxes I should check, rather than actually just listening to what your gut says. You know, I think as a society, it's we're slowly moving away from this, which I think is great. But we put so much emphasis on time spent with somebody, on the years spent with somebody as some kind of indication of healthy relationship or success. 
It's like, I don't care that y'all have been married for 50 years. You've been sleeping in separate bedrooms for 30 of it and y'all hate each other. Like, why is that? Why should I look to that as like some kind of marker of success versus is it a happy, healthy relationship, right? And and can we allow a relationship to expire when it's time for it to expire without either person feeling like they've done anything wrong, but it just feels like this is the natural timeline of this relationship. But that's a radical way of looking at it. Right. And seeing that Mm -hmm. that's a success, like, okay, you're transitioning or ending the relationship, which I have kids with someone. So it's not, I'm I'm transitioned the relationship because (laughs) we have kids together. So we are going to be family for the rest of our life. So like, okay, transition the relationship. Like then that is actually the success, not the like, we kept it in this way that a relationship we were taught should be by two parents or something like that. That like, you can also see relationships that ended or went, you know, transitioned in some way of friendship or whatever, that, that that's a success. Like what is a success? <laughs> what makes success? It doesn't have to be that you're together. Right. Success should be that y'all are happy and motivated and respectful of each other. And, you know, and, and of course there's going to be ebb and flow in any relationship. There's expansion and contraction in every relationship. And I'm not saying that the second there feels like there's a contraction, it's time to bail, right? Of course there should be hard work. I mean, that's relationships are hard, right? That's that one side of the coin that we were talking about, like the one and kind of bailing too soon is really on this idea that like relationships shouldn't be this difficult. No, relationships are really freaking difficult, especially if they're fulfilling deep passion-based relationships. Um, And so that is false. Like you got to know going in that you got to put in some hard work and it's not going to always be butterflies and rainbows all the time, right? Um, But on the other side, it's not for me to say like how hard is too hard and like what, where is that line for you, right? And that to me feels like that, disconnection with self is to really know like when this this relationship is not serving me anymore not in like an egoic sense but like in a larger purpose sense like this relationship is made up of two individual parts but this relationship is greater than the whole you know we are making something greater through our union together and if that's not really the case anymore then let's have a conversation about it yeah and i feel like and i think this might have even uh been a somewhat hang up for me but not a big one but it was one i was aware of with like that it also can be, well, sort of like, if I end this relationship, though, does that mean like I should have known better when I started it or whatever? Like I should have listened to my intuition back then. And so it's like this sort of like the knowing of ending the relationship means like, oh, no, because they're admitting like maybe you're wrong. But like, no, how we don't know. Like it's all a learning and living process and trying it and that. But like, I think that that can be something that keeps people in relationships too. It's like, they don't want to then, what does this mean about me and the choices I made because I even was in this relationship? If I now can feel that it's not the right one. Is it my Angelou that's- Which is ridiculous. Cause it's like, how would we know if we didn't go into it? I think it's my Angelou (laughs) that says, when you know better, do better. Right. It's like, this idea of like you you did the best you can with what you had. Also, I listen, this might be so like woo-woo for people, but like I do believe in divine timing. Like everything in our life is essentially there to teach us lessons. And so this was the experience and the lesson that you needed in the time that you had it in order to now become who you are now or who you will become later. And so I don't regret, even in the most tumultuous of my relationships, I don't regret the relationships because now listen the idea of making meaning, meaning we are meaning-making beings. 
you can't force yourself to be in a place of meaning making. So like, don't misconstrue that. Like sometimes if you're in the, the place of like, fuck this person, they're an asshole, then stay in that place. That's okay. Like you might need to be in that place for a while, but eventually the hope is that we get to a place where you can do the hindsight and you can say, what did I learn? You know, because I entered into that relationship too. So I'm not just the victim of my circumstance. Again, owning our part, what was it that I contributed? What did I take away from it? How did this shape me in a way that I now am different and I can, you know, look at that in a good way? And like, how, how is that going to impact me moving forward? Rather than again, coming from that constant state of victimhood, like I didn't know. And, you know, I am bad and I am wrong and they did this to me. And it's, it's just, it's a very different way of approaching kind of like the trajectory of your life and like what happened in it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm so grateful for my relationship and really it is like, yeah, I can see the divine timing and all of it and having my kids and in all of it and that he has those kids now that he never thought he wanted. Um, yeah. And it's just so interesting too, how like, I think it is just more the societal like shame on ending relationships, especially if they are longer or like you have kids and how much I'm surprised still how many people can have like shame about being like a single parent or something. And I'm like, I feel so freaking empowered that like, yeah, I'm saying like, but like when I show up to things or that, and then people can sort of be like, oh, oh, what, what, what uh, this? And I'm like, yeah, no, like what? Like, this is the choice that I made. Like those sorts of things that it can feel as if we did something wrong or blah, blah, blah. I think we should throw parties sometimes and we'll get divorced. Like, why are there not like congratulations? Like you, you did the right thing. You know? <laughs> when people would hear and they still will like hear, they'll be like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, oh, you don't need to say you're sorry. You can say congratulations. Like we've made choices that are for the best for our lives and our family. Like, um, anyway, okay. I'll get to the questions I ask everybody, which is the first is what is a go-to to raise your joy levels? Personally? Yeah. Something you do to like when you're like, oh, I need a little boost. I am definitely a fan of like getting out in nature. That doesn't have to be like total immersion, but even just like going out onto the grass and taking off my shoes really raises my joy levels pretty quickly. I I have to be very in tune with what I need at what time because sometimes raising my joy levels looks like I'm I'm an extrovert, so it looks like being around people. So like Last night, even though I knew I was going to be tired today, I like went and met a friend who was in town from New York and we laughed for hours and caught up and it was amazing. And that's like pretty much an instant boost for me. But also sometimes I'm like, I, I'm a parent of a young child. And so sometimes I'm like, everyone leave me alone and shut up. <laughs> I want absolute silence and alone time. So it just depends, I guess, on the moment. <laughs> No, I love that. I was recently a guest on somebody's podcast and they're like, one of their final question was like, oh, what's your like self-care routine or something like that? And I was like, I don't have one. But I meant to say like, because I'm like aware of what I need time to talk, like, you know, like, oh, well, sometimes I want to do this and sometimes that, but I don't have a, like, I do this and I do this and I do this every day. But like, yeah, after the conversation ended, I was like, oh, I didn't like explain that. I was just so excited by the fact that I don't have. <laughs> no, I, I should like explain that a little bit more. Note to self, name why you were so exciting to exclaim that <laughs> you don't have like a daily. <laughs> because you thread it into your life, right? Yeah. Um, I ask everybody to apply this phrase to their life. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. So what is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me is blank. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's harder, just like a way that you might be naturally wired. I could probably answer that in a million ways, um, as I'm sure most people can. <laughs> what is easiest for me is to 
shut down, withdraw, avoid, walls, hyper-independence, protection of self. But it doesn't mean that it's the best thing for me because what is best for me actually is to lean into the discomfort of the conflict because of the connection on the other side of it. Um, what is best for me is actually to lean into the I literally have to like take a breath when I say it, the vulnerability, the intimacy with another person, because I do tend to be so avoidant where like I just want to kind of pull backwards. So I'm I'm very aware of that pattern not being what's actually the healthiest for me. It's just a protection. <laughs> so good to know. Okay. The last question is. The name of the podcast is Claim It. What are you claiming for yourself right now? Oh, right now I'm very in this mind space. Like what's very present for me in this moment is claiming, how do I put this in like a pithy way? Like I don't want to say bodily autonomy, but there's something what's really activated for me right now and it's I'm, I'm watching it. I mean, it's present probably because of societally and Roe v. Wade and everything that's going on. But this idea of as women, we're taught that our bodies are not ours and that our sexuality and that our our pleasure and our joy is not ours, right? It's in service of others. And I'm really reclaiming that that's not true. Like I'm reclaiming my bodily autonomy. Like if it it better be a hell yes or it's a no. And uh, my poor partner is like, I mean, I like this and, (laughs) 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 but I'm like experimenting with this, you know, I think especially having a daughter, it's like, I want her to be very boundaried and I want her to be proud of her boundaries and I want her to say no without a doubt, you know, and uh, that is not something that I am good at, nor do I think a lot of women are good at. So it's, it's, Bodily autonomy, boundaries around self, I think are something for sure that I'm claiming. Love that. Thank you so much for sharing. Go check out their new book, which, oh yeah, we didn't even mention your partner's name, John Kim, also known as The Angry Therapist. The new book is It's Not. I know everybody does it. I keep wanting to think that you changed it to be like sassy. And I'm like, wait, it is. it's not... It's not yep. me, it's you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like we use the phrase, like it's like such a known phrase, but I'm doubting. Well, we're used to saying it's not you, it's me as a dating back out, right? But it's like the funny verse is actually really what we're all saying is it's actually not me, it's you. Right, right. That must be also why it's like making me pause in my brain. It's like we know what it is, but yeah, the like way that it gets said. Awesome. So excited for you. Thanks for sharing. Thanks, Trish. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, as always, for tuning in, for listening. I really appreciate the fact that you're spending your time listening to me and my conversations. Please, if you haven't yet, leave a review, screenshot it, send it to podcast at yourjoyologist.com. Go find Vanessa at Vanessa Bennett online. All things me are at underscore Trisha Huffman. I have your joyologist and claim it podcast also. And F the should do the ones. (laughs) I'm out there in all the places. Make sure to check out their new book. It's not me. It's you. I will also link to John, her husband's episode. And I was a guest on Vanessa's podcast, Cheaper Than Therapy, a few months back. I will link that in the show notes. And um, yeah, also 
Have you gotten my book yet? F the shoulds, do the ones. I'm hearing so much amazing feedback from you all, which I really, really appreciate in the forms of reviews on Amazon and Goodreads. But also, I love when you tag me when you're sharing posts on social media, and I love getting DMs from you. That's the point. I wrote the book for you in the hopes that it supports you, empowers you, changes the way that you think about yourself and your life. So I love hearing from you. Go to ftheshouldsdothewants.com and find where you can buy the book or, you know, Amazon, all the places. All right. I love supporting you. Please check out my From the Heart membership at trishahuffman.substack.com. All the links are in the show notes. Make sure to check out Sprout Living's amazing products. Use code CLAIM20 for 20% off. Get my daily inspiration app called Own Your Awesome. Shop my products. I got so many things that I'm offering you to empower you to be in your life, to love yourself, to accept yourself, to own who you are instead of trying so hard to not enjoy your life, right? We don't realize how often we are keeping ourselves from not enjoying our life, even when, yeah, life can be hard. And sometimes when life is good, you might be keeping yourself from actually enjoying it and celebrating it because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And that's the freaking truth. So that is what all my work is about. How can you be showing up in your daily life so that you're actually able to be present to it and live in the moment? Well, yeah, you got to work on things that are coming in the future, but how can you find daily joy and fulfillment? All right. So let's leave it on an an end note. What are you going to do today or right now to boost your joy levels and or connect with your feeling of being fulfilled right now? 